Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us on the show is Rhett Jepson, the president and co-founder of Investment Management Consultants. Thank you for coming on today, Rhett. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Amy. Absolutely. So my favorite thing uh, when I'm doing these podcasts is to start out by getting you to reflect a little bit on your journey. Tell our audience your story. How did you get started and how did you get to where you are today? Well, thank you. That's a, it's a fun question to reflect on. And the, the simple answer that's kind of the funny one is that when I was about five years old, one of my favorite toys was a calculator. And I remember back in the days, I was probably six or seven years old and I had my first bank account and it was in the days when you had a passbook savings account and they'd, you'd take your little book in and they'd print out your balance and the interest. And I was fascinated by watching money grow. Well, fast forward, I was, uh, I was always a worker in middle school and high school. I always had jobs. I had lawn mowing businesses. I worked in restaurants. I did paper routes. And I don't know if you remember those old ledgers that people used to have. CPAs used to use them. They were these big elongated green sheets of paper. And I was that guy that used to record every dollar that I earned and I'd keep track of everything I spent. So it was just part of what I did. And I also had my first intro to investing or savings when I was in middle school and I went to my local credit union. I'd saved $1,000 and I put it in a CD and I think I got a 13% interest rate. And every time I had another $1,000, I'd go put it into another CD. So I learned early on the concept of saving and watching money grow. Well, fast forward, uh, college came and I was going down the path of pre-med. So I was taking the biology classes and the physics classes. And about my senior year, uh, which is when I got married, I, I had this epiphany all of a sudden that what I really love is money and numbers and finance and story problems. And I could get paid to do this and make a career out of it. So I, I abandoned the, the route of going pre-med and I did a couple of internships in financial planning my senior year at college. And the, the, late, the, the last internship that I did happened to be with a man named Dave who ended up being my mentor and, and my employer and then my partner over the years. So after college, uh, my wife and I had a little adventure. We moved overseas and taught English in South Korea for the better part of a year. And while there, I kept in touch with Dave. And when I returned, I joined him as an administrative assistant part-time. And the other half-time, I was getting licensed and building my own clientele. And this was in 1997, I think, which was right in the middle of a tech boom in the market. And his business was rapidly growing. I moved quickly into a junior advisor role. And over time, that led to a, a formal partnership. And we had a fantastic relationship for 20 years and, and built our business around a team concept. He retired in 2016 and we've continued on with the team expanding and growing. There's seven of us all together and that's how I got where I am today. So was, it, was there any moment as you were deciding uh, where to go in your journey in terms of coming more into partnership and ownership where you were the least bit intimidated by the idea? Um, what would you, you know, how, how would you describe that to others who are trying to make that decision of whether they can take that leap from being maybe more in a more supporting role to the lead role? 
Well, I always knew that I wanted to be an advisor. And so with that in mind, you really have one of two paths. And that is that you end up being your own advisor, finding your own clients and growing your own business. Or you can join into something that's already established and existing and help it to grow and build ownership and equity in that over time. And so the leap wasn't scary or challenging to me. Um, maybe the the part that was the scary and challenging part is when my longtime partner was deciding to retire. It's kind of like having been married to somebody very closely for 20 years and suddenly, wait a minute, do, it, do I have the confidence to and the tools to continue this on my own now as, as the lead person? And I did, and we've had our struggles, but it certainly has been very rewarding. Yeah, you've got a fantastic uh, business, no doubt about it. Talk about that team concept a little bit more. You've got seven people. What are their roles? How does this work? So we have two to three of us that fill the vol- uh, the role of advice giving, and the remainder are in uh, a support or administrative capacity. And so when, when, a, when we bring on a new client or as they interface with us, we help define those roles to them. They, they know that if they have questions that are more in the realm of advice, that they talk to those that are primarily advice givers. And if they have questions that are more administrative in nature, they generally go to our operations manager who then oversees and delegates everybody's workload to make sure that it's balanced out. But on everybody's input and their opinions and their ideas all matter. We meet once a week as a team to collaborate. We talk about any problems that we have going on that need to be fixed, any success stories with clients, any concerns that we have, uh, just the changing nature of what's going on. We want to make sure that they are educated, informed, and that there's not a there's not a wall between the advice givers and the non-advice givers, so they're in the dark. We want them to understand what our challenges are and what our growth opportunities are and have them feel great. vested in the whole process. Talk about the clients. Um, every client in some way, shape, or form, has slightly different needs. Do you talk about the process? Do you build unique plans for each client? How do you determine and, and get them to share with you the information you need to figure out what they need? That's a great question and, and really probably my favorite question because I have always believed from day one that to be a successful advisor it's essential to know why someone is investing before you choose how to invest their money. And so much of our industry um, takes it the other way around. They have you fill out a questionnaire, you're profiled and you're plugged based on a risk tolerance questionnaire into a predefined asset allocation without understanding all of the other nuances of that particular person's situation. How do they feel about money? Um, Do they have kids? Do they have grandkids? What are some of the challenges they face? Do they have debt? Does it weigh heavily on them? Do they they plan to live like their parents do? Do they want to live differently? There's all of these considerations. In our industry, we call it the psychology of money. It's how people think about money. And you find that you have, for as many different people as you talk to, you have that many different opinions about how they feel about money. So, you, you, you referenced the word unique. Yes, we create a unique plan for each person based on all of their data input. And really, it's a matter of us telling them this at the very beginning, that if they're going to work with us, we want to know everything about them. And they may have a brokerage accounts with other 
investment firms, and that's perfectly fine. We're not here to sling mud at the other advisors. We're not here to steal those assets necessarily. We want to understand everything about them so we can put a comprehensive, customized plan in place for them. And then I think the, the second part to that, Amy, is as we meet with them on an ongoing basis, part of the whole process is that almost every time we meet, we spend 70 to 80% of our time talking about them, their situation, their children, their hardships, their success stories, their hobbies. We talk about life first and without discounting it, the whole investment process is very much an afterthought. It's as long as there's nothing that's really significantly out of whack, as long as we're reasonably on track, most people in real life, uh, when you're working with individuals as opposed to institutions, they really just want to have a couple of questions answered. One of them is, am I on track? And the other one is, will I be okay? Most people really don't care about the alpha, the beta, the standard deviation, ETF, mutual fund. They don't care about most of those things. They want to know if they're going to be okay and if they're on track. Talk about 2020. What did you learn? How did the clients, did the client's behavior change as you worked with them? Certainly 2020 brought a unique set of worries to clients that we hadn't dealt with before, um, with COVID being the unique event. But I would also point out that most of the clients we work with are seasoned investors who have lived through many other difficult periods of time. And part of it might just be our approach. Um, part of it might be that they've worked with us long enough that they simply trust us and have confidence in us. But we didn't have the alarming level of concern that I've seen in other downturns. There were a few, but for the most part, we, as a firm, we take a very conservative investment philosophy to begin with, which means we don't experience as much of the downside uh, to the changes in market value. So we, you know, clients definitely had some angst over it because so much of the news caused uncertainty, but we kept in touch with them. We communicated regularly. We were all working remotely, but we amped up the amount of contact we had with them. We made ourselves available. And I think that gave them tremendous peace of mind and comfort during this. And, and in fact, the, the comment that I think I heard the most during all of this is something to the effect of, we trust you, or we don't worry about it because you guys are taking care of us. And you know this probably ties into another question somewhere down the road, but if I could tell you the most rewarding thing about my job, my career, is that. If somebody says that, it's a success. I've had a successful career. If somebody doesn't worry about these things that are difficult and scary, I've done my job. Absolutely. At the same time, I know you take your fiduciary responsibility and um, you make sure that you are doing everything that you can with your team to protect your clients, sometimes from themselves probably. But why do you uh, follow up on that a little bit for me? Why do you think that those things are important? The world of finance and investing and money in general for a lot of people is a foreign language. It's very scary. And what they hear mostly in the media is bad news. They hear about digital piracy, identity theft, Ponzi schemes, Bernie Madoff, affinity fraud, hacking. And it takes a tremendous leap of faith for somebody to 
turn over to somebody else. Here are our financial resources, or here's my money. Please take care of it. It takes a tremendous leap of faith. And I, you know, I, I have four kids. My uh, I have three boys and a, a girl. My oldest two boys are 21 and almost 19, respectively. And when they got to the age where they were old enough to start really being curious about what dad does for a living and asking the questions, you know, at, at the basic level, all of us are selling something to somebody. We're selling advice and a process and investments. But truly what we're selling to these people that are our, our friends and clients uh, is integrity and trust. That's really the commodity that we sell. Everything else that we sell, they can find it somewhere else, often packaged in a more appealing wrapper, cheaper, faster. They're marketed to constantly. And so this question of protecting people, it really comes down to these core values of do you as an advisor and as a firm, do you believe in and show that you have trust and integrity? And that's not something that you earn in one day. That's earned over time because they take this leap of faith and it's that you continually do the right thing in every situation for the client. And I'll tell you, Amy, we've had, you know, I've been doing this almost 25 years and every year or two, we make mistakes. And, and oftentimes in our industry, when you make a mistake, it has a financial consequence because you've typed in an order incorrectly or you misunderstood something. And when you make a mistake, that one of the signs of integrity is do you quickly own up to it? Be very direct with the client. We made a mistake and we're going to make sure that you're made whole. And then you take care of it. You stand by your word. So in this day and age of, of all of these concerns that are around people, that's really my answer to your question when it comes to protecting the consumer. It's if you have trust and integrity, then what you also do is, I think you used the word fiduciary a minute ago, you put yourself in their shoes and, and turn, the, turn the table around and say, how would, how would I want to be treated from somebody that was managing my money? Um, you would expect honesty and integrity. And that's really the core value that we are, or commodity, if you will, that we are selling. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you mentioned children. I know the old, it sounded like the oldest uh, children are at, uh, close to their 20s, right? 21 and 19, I think yes. you said. Did you teach them about money at a young age? Do they follow in your footsteps in terms of uh, learning? Okay, not on green ledger paper like you and I did because they're a different age, but um, is anybody showing an interest? And how did you, how did you handle that as a, as a father in our industry? Yes, so they absolutely have asked the questions and I've shown, uh, I've taught them and they have shown interest. Uh, what's different is we have asked our children to make their primary job, if you will, education. So they've spent more of their time focusing on school during middle school and high school and college. Um, we have still allowed them and helped them have part-time jobs. So they do have some income on their own, which is, I think, really important. It gives people a sense of worth and that I can do things. And, you know, really my approach, I should say our approach, this has been my, my wife and my approach, is that about when they're 12 years old or so, I sit down with them and I have a very basic lesson that I give them that talks about the difference between saving and investing. And I often relate the investing side to a business. You've 
you've started a lemonade stand and we talk about the cost of buying the ingredients and that you make a profit. And what if it starts getting really big and you wanted to have some other friends come and help you, you could hire them. And what if they opened another stand? So I help them understand what a company looks like. And we then talk about the concept of, of investing in businesses or companies to lead into a conversation about stocks. And as a 12 year old, whenever they get any source of income, um, we have them set aside a certain amount for spending on things they want, a certain amount to charity, and then the remainder that they want to save or invest, we always have them put half of it in a bank account so they can learn the concept of safe liquid investing. And the other half, we have them put into a stock mutual fund or ETF, something where they have the experience of watching it go up and down. We look at the companies that they own and as an incentive on the investing side, until they're 18, if they put in a dollar, mom and dad will match it with an additional dollar. So there's a little bit of an incentive there, also knowing that they can't touch it. They need to invest it and leave it alone. And so that's been a really positive experience. And you know, as, as a dad, one of the really rewarding things, it was probably, a, it, was, it was during COVID, I think it was my 16 year old son uh, who said, hey dad, I was watching the markets down. Is now a good time to invest? I said. Absolutely. And so he had probably $50 he had saved and we put $100 in. And I think that $100 is probably doubled in the last year. So yes, they're learning. That's fantastic. Uh, financial literacy is, there's a huge gap, uh, continues to be, I think we talk about it more. Now, maybe it's generational in some ways. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I remember my parents when I was the age of your children feeling comfortable talking about money with, right? Uh, it, it just wasn't something that um, that they did, but I do feel like it's happening more and more, and hopefully the schools are picking up a little bit right. of it um, as well. People such as yourself and others in our industry are out there volunteering to try to bring a better spotlight onto the issues surrounding money so that we don't have a whole generation of people that suddenly they're, they become income earners and don't know the types of lessons that you're describing. Exactly right. So we talked a little bit a minute ago about what you love most about your work, but do you want to expand on that at all? How, what, do you, what do you love about what you do? So I'm naturally an introvert. When I go to big group settings and parties, I'm the quiet one that just sits there. I'm not the social outgoing person, but I really, really enjoy one-on-one. -on -one. If I'm with one person talking to another one person, I really enjoy that. And so my, the favorite thing about my career and about my occupation truly is the relationships that I've developed. And that's both with my immediate uh, coworkers. We're definitely a family in that regard, but also just as I've uh, grown to love and appreciate my clients, we call them clients, but really they're just our friends. There are friends who entrust us to help with a service that they either don't know how or don't want to do on their own. And that's just been the most rewarding part for, for me. And, and I, I can't tell you how many times people come in, and I mentioned this earlier, that we'll spend 70% of our time just talking about life, but I've got a tissue box sitting right on the end of my table because there's lots of times that they're crying over the challenges with their children or their relationships, and I just put on my listening hat as a counselor. I'm not full of great advice, but sometimes people just need to come and talk about those things, and then they leave feeling better about themselves. But 
most of the time the conversations are happy. I mean, the, t the tissues don't get used all that often, but they're there and it happens. But really it's just the relationships. It's uh, that I, I care for these people and it's not just, they're not just a number. It's not just a, a source of revenue. These are real people that have real lives. And that has been the most rewarding part for me. And I'll even take that a step further. I've now been in my career long enough to have seen people who have transitioned into retirement, lived a long time, and now some of them even passed away. And, you know, that's part of the cycle of life. It's also part of the financial planning process. When we call it estate planning, it's, it's dealing with the inevitable. But it's, it's also, that's been a very rewarding part for us as well, is just knowing that these people were, uh, that they had planned well, that it was set up in place. We then are often working with the adult children with all of the next steps with beneficiary des, uh, distributions and taking care of mom and dad's estate. And it's just a very comfortable thing to, to pass on that they had been so well prepared and everything's in good order. And it's not this overly difficult and stressful situation for the ad adult children. And in many cases, we know the adult children because we've already spoken to them or possibly even we work with them as clients. But just that whole cycle of life and dealing with life events, whether it's having kids and grandkids or transitioning from the workforce to retirement, which is a very scary event, or dealing with old age issues and eventually passing away, just helping people navigate those challenging or uncertain life events and knowing that somebody else is there who's been through it with other people and has experience and can give them that calming peace of mind, that's very, very rewarding to me. You bring up a great point uh, around generational planning. Do you have a particular expectation uh, regarding any kind of generational planning approach when you're working with clients? I don't have an expectation, but we do try to make it part of our process that as we're talking to, especially our older clients, that we do make sure we know who their children are. And we encourage them, in fact, uh, to have, if, if they haven't, to have a family meeting where they include us or the attorney or the CPA so that these uh, adult children know who the different parties are there in, that are involved. So no, not an expectation, but many times uh, a lot of these adult children choose to work with us prior to mom and dad passing, and some of them don't, and that's fine. Some of them have other relationships and when mom and dad pass away, we don't have any expectations that we keep the assets. We're simply there to help them get it where they need in a timely and, and orderly manner. Yeah, I think it's an important component for most financial professionals to at least be aware of. We know that, to your point, not everybody is a great fit to work with the same financial professional as their parents. Sure. That, that said, just making sure that there's some sort of a connection, I think, just makes the plan stronger. Absolutely. So you've had a great year in 2020, even with all of the challenges that the world has been faced with. Um, talk a little bit about not just surviving, but thriving. So as we transitioned, as, as COVID was really overtaking the market and we had this abrupt realization that we do also have to work remotely, um, partly from government mandate and partly just being responsible. Uh, initially, I was a little terrified because we have spent so much of our business and so much of our career building around this concept of meeting in person and having the synergies of being in person. 
And so I was a little bit concerned about this transition to working remotely where we couldn't really see what our employees were doing and how much time were they actually at their desk and working and would our productivity go way down? Uh, would it eliminate our ability to bring new clients aboard? Because so much of it was walking in, seeing us, seeing the office, seeing that we're a legitimate business. Those were some concerns I had. So as, as we went to our homes and we talked about it, we said it's really critical that now more than ever, we up our game, that we give excellent customer service. People are going to be on edge. They're going to be nervous. But thankfully, we had already been accustomed to using the technologies like Zoom and lots of other services. It wasn't, we didn't have a huge learning curve there, thankfully. So as we went home, we continued to conduct our business normally. And, and I would say in, in almost every case, our clients were all very patient and understanding because they were in the same boat and they were just grateful and comfortable that we were still in business and that everything felt very normal to them uh, with the exception of being socially isolated. And the one surprise that came to me, Amy, in all of this is that our productivity increased. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the actual amount of time it takes to get to work, to get dressed, to drive in the car, to put on your clothes, to go to the dry clean or all these different things that you do when you're going to work. We had that much more time that we didn't have to spend on that. It was more dedicated to work. But the other real surprise is that we continued to be very referable. Um, as a business, we do zero marketing. We never have. We don't do seminars. We don't do we can't do cold calling anymore, but we don't call randomly. We don't do mailers. 100% of our business always has been and always will be word of mouth. And the quality and number of referrals that we received during the last 12 months in the COVID period far outweighed anything that we've ever seen in any other year in our operation. And I don't know exactly what to attribute that to other than the fact that our client base obviously is talking about this to other people. It's a situational thing. They talk about it and it comes up and they refer to us. And it takes a leap of faith to refer one of your friends or family members to anybody else, whether it's you know, who cleans your windows, who your mechanic is, who your financial advisor is, because you've now put your name out there and your credibility is on the line. But we had more referrals than we've ever seen. And in our industry, you know, we, we often measure success on the volume of assets that we bring in in dollars and cents. I know it's arbitrary, but that's just the fact of how it is. And, and we also brought in more assets this last year than we ever have. So it was a combination of more high quality referrals and more assets coming in. And we were also, as they came in, we, the same process as before, um, we have no expectations when somebody contacts us. It's a, we're interviewing you and you're interviewing us to see if we're a good fit because we're not a good fit for everybody and, and vice versa. But we did go through that process and we, we learned tremendously. And now as we're back to the office, uh, we're about 90% returned to the office now. We're trying to take some of those things that we learned, some of those best practices and apply them to being in the office so that we don't revert. Um, but there are some things we're going to revert to, which is that there is tremendous value in having people be in the office, whether that's employees or clients coming in. And we're maybe not as productive anymore, but I'm perfectly content with that. I'd rather have the social aspect of people to getting together and having better mental health than necessarily just saying our productivity increased ex exponentially.
this is a relationship business and we need to figure out a way to merge the lessons we've learned and continue to foster in-person, face-to-face as well, I think, and at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Yes. Great. Thanks for sharing that with us. So we talked a little bit about your family. Our listeners find a lot of joy in realizing that these highly successful people I interview also have a personal life and (laughs) they do have hobbies and they do have balance and all of those things. So tell us what you do outside of work. I think uh, traveling and backpacking perhaps is a part of your life, but just share with us uh, some of the favorite places you visited and what you like to do on your free time. Yeah, so I, I have a few hobbies. I'll just give you the brief version of them. I, I play basketball. I have almost my whole life. I'm uh, I'm 50 years old, and I still play three mornings a week. I'm lucky that my knees and ankles are all still in good shape, but I, I've, I've enjoyed that a lot. Um, I When I was a younger man, I used to ride off-road motorcycles. This was in my high school and college age years. I kind of put that on hold during all the child raising years, and about three or four years ago, all of my buddies, uh, we got motorcycles again. So I go out and ride off-road motorcycles pretty regularly, which is probably the most thrill-seeking thing that I do. And quite frankly, my, my favorite thing to do is just to be outside. I live in Utah. And you know, for, for those people who haven't been to Utah, it's like living in a postcard. There is just so much beauty everywhere. And I do lots of hiking and camping and backpacking. And I really try to pair that up with my family as much as possible so that it's that are that are hobbies done with my family together. Uh, this summer I'm going on a backpacking trip. Uh, it's 104 miles long. It's done over seven or eight days and I'm I get to take my 16 year old son with me and I'm going with five other guys. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then just uh, my wife and I, when we were very first dating, we just made a commitment that travel was going to be a big part of our life. And so uh, we have seen the world and will continue to see the world. And to the extent possible, we've taken our children with us. There's two things I think it's okay to spoil your kids with. Uh, one is the gift of education and the other one is the gift of travel. I think those are the two best ways that people learn about life. So we spend basically our discretionary money on travel. Uh, I agree with that. I've uh, actually had to have conversations as my kids were growing up with school administrators about the fact that uh, as long as their grades were up, I was polling them to take them with me on trips. Um, (laughs) Not everyone agrees that that's okay, but um, I do think that through the travel that they've had the ability to experience with our, uh, my husband and I as well, it's uh, given them a, a very different perspective on the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's your favorite place? I have so many that uh, I'll just tell you what our most recent favorite place is because it's the one that we've gone to quite regularly with my family, and that's uh, Sanibel Island in Florida. Um, I know that uh, you've been to Marco Island before, and so have I. It's fairly close to Marco Island, but it's a sleepy little quiet community where there's lots of seashells and it's just kind of like you've gone back to the 1970s in Florida and it's just very laid back and non-commercial. We rent bikes when we go there for the whole week because you can bike to the ice cream shop or to the restaurants or to the bird refuge. But most of the time we just like to get up in the morning and go sit on the beach and collect seashells and just play in the water and do nothing. I love Sanibel too. It's on my list of favorites as well. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So, Rhett, is there anything I haven't asked that you think our listeners should know about you or our business? 
I guess for my closing comment there, Amy, is that this, sometimes I talk to other financial advisors and they, you know, they ask the question, do you think your kids will ever follow in your footsteps and get in this business? And almost in a joking way, we all sort of cringe and say, oh, I sure hope not, because it's, it is a very challenging and often stressful occupation. Uh, I, you know, I, I've talked so much about the rewards of interfacing with clients and getting to know them and the relationships. The other stark reality is that you're dealing with these concepts of things that are many times beyond your control. It's hard, you, you can't control the markets and the world events and the, the constant barrage of fear and greed that's thrown at you through the news media. And so it's very challenging and can weigh on you very emotionally, uh, especially if you take it personally, when you see markets go down and clients, they will experience losses from time to time. And when that happens, that can weigh on you very heavily and it can weigh on them very heavily and it can be emotionally grueling. So I, th I think that's part of what people need to understand is that this is a very, very challenging business, but the flip side is it's also very rewarding and, and actually to the question of would I encourage or allow my kids to be in this business? Absolutely, if they wanted to. I have no expectations that they will, but if they chose to, absolutely. It's a wonderful career path, wonderful opportunities. You get to work with wonderful people and it is just very rewarding. Well said, and Cambridge needs the next generation. So I would welcome them as well. Yes. Uh, knowing, knowing their dad uh, and the great business you've built, family businesses do tend to thrive for sure. And uh, if one or more of them choose to follow in your footsteps, I'm sure that they will carry on uh, and be successful as well. Thank you. So thank you for joining me today. I appreciate tremendously the approach that you take and being the trusted advisor for your clients. I think each and every day we come back into an industry and have to earn the credibility that perhaps others have, to your points earlier, um, they haven't done the right thing. And uh, it's always good to know that there's people like you out there doing the right thing even when no one is looking, and that's important. And I really appreciate you being a part of Cambridge and trusting us as your partner. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com.